Welcome to Fiona's Travels podcast. That was Brittany and Natalie Haas, recorded at the Baltimore Fiddle Fair in 2018. It's August 2018 and I've been at the Yiddish summer Weimar for three weeks now. It's in Weimar in central Germany. I've been volunteering here doing the washing up and the cleaning and I've also been doing klezmer dancing and Yemeni dancing and Syrian dancing and recording lots of music that I'm going to show you in another podcast and gone to lots of concerts and jam sessions and everything else. It's an amazing festival but today I'm going to be interviewing Alan Byrne, who's the director of the festival. We had the interview walking between the dance class and the headquarters of the festival, so there's quite a bit of traffic noise. Um, but I think we can get over that, and we're going to start off with hearing him playing for our dance class. This is a colour maker. So here I am with Alan Byrne. Who, did you create this festival? Yes. Is it your idea? Why is it here, by the way? Okay, because in 1999, uh, Weimar had European Union money. Mm -hmm. Like many cities uh, each year are named European Cultural Capital. All right. And Weimar was already in the 90s sort of struggling to figure out what its contemporary identity should be because um, it has a problem with the 20th century. Let's put it that way. The Bauhaus started here, but they kicked it out. Mm -hmm. um, Weimar and Thuringia in general was uh, had a Nazi government two years before Hitler came to power. Um, wow. <laughs> shortly after the war, the Russians, uh, the Soviets were here and uh, turned Buchenwald into a sort of a reverse camp um, where, where another generation of people, not Jews, were imprisoned, but, but um, supposedly... Um, enemies of the of the Soviet state. So the whole 20th century has been a difficult one for Weimar concerning its identity. And then if they go back to the time of the 19th century, that's even a little bit tricky because the huge major figure here in Weimar in the 19th century was Wagner. And he's also an anti-Semite, very well known. So Weimar basically bases its identity on the period of uh, this, this so-called the Weimar classic uh, which is Goethe, Schiller, Herder, all these people. But that's, that's 200 years old already. So what should its contemporary identity be? And given a chance to kind of create a contemporary European identity, uh, I'm sure that it occurred to the people um, who were running the, the cultural activities that year that having something which is Jewish here gives it a certain kind of European identity or a transnational identity. So I didn't realize that then because um, with Brave Old World and with some other bands of mine, um, we were already doing workshops all around the world. But I think there was a special, a special motivation here in Weimar to kind of create or to have something which was an obvious public demonstration of transnationalism. 
That's how it started here. Wow. That's a much longer explanation and then, and than you probably expected. were already based expected. in Germany? Well, I had already been living in Germany since 1987. Okay, so you were already speaking fluently and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And it's called the Other Music Academy. Right. Why? Because um, although it started off as a Klezmer Music Festival in 1999, and by the year 2006, it had grown into something which was very broadly about Yiddish culture, not just Klezmer Music, but also literature, theater, history... Um, politics, song, dance, everything, a whole cultural uh, profile. And we realized it would be misleading to keep calling it Klezmer Weeks. So at that point, we reconsidered who we were and the whole legal structure. We created a not-for-profit organization. And from the beginning, I, I wanted our work with Yiddish culture to be happening on two levels. One level of it should be really very content-oriented about Yiddish culture, but because Yiddish culture has always been very strongly transnational, that, that um, working with Yiddish culture automatically opens up the second level, which is just to think about what identity is, what individual, what cultural, what national identity is, and that immediately brings up the whole issue of otherness. Mm -hmm. What is to be oneself, what are the others, and so forth. So, rather than creating an organization called Yiddish music, not-for-profit, um, or Jewish music or Jewish culture or anything like that. I said, look, let's really jump right into the future of where we're going with all of this and call it Other Music. Um, so the organization itself is called Other Music. This is the not-for-profit organization. Mm -hmm. And then, more or less, a few years later, we were given this huge building that we're walking towards now, which is a more than 100-year-old um, it was started off actually as a customs office, but after the war it turned into a school, mm -hmm. and it was a ruin when we got it, so it needed to be uh, renovated, w about a couple million euros worth of renovation, which we've been struggling to get together for the last 10 years. And um, the question was, wh what should we call this? So I knew from the beginning that I didn't want to do only music in there. I wanted it to be a kind of a large, um, what I call it now, an empowerment center which means that we work with the widest variety, possible variety of people to give them more creative power, more creative control in their lives, more contact with others. Basically an alternative to consumerism. An alternative to consumerism and to fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. um, but since we were already, our organization was already called Other Music, and somehow it occurred to us, well, if we call it the Other Music Academy, then the abbreviation of this, OMA, means grandma in German and it sort of resonates with the MoMA which in New York is the modern right. Museum of Modern Art mm -hmm. and I thought it was a kind of funny light parody of the seriousness of the MoMA you know Museum of Modern Art so we're going to be the OMA right and there are a lot of different ways in which that becomes playful like for example an OMA cafe in Germany originally is well, when I, when I came here in the 80s and the 90s, it was a cafe that a cool person wouldn't go to. You know, there's a certain kind of cafe people go to, which are, you know, grandmothers go there to have coffee and cake at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We thought, wow, we're going to have an Oma cafe in our building, you know. So what I liked about having this abbreviation Oma and grandmother is, again, several different levels at once. One is that um, in Yiddish culture, but not only in Yiddish culture, lots of cultures in the world, uh, a, a fair amount of the cultural transmission, let's say the lifeblood of the culture, 
um, doesn't take place on stages or at, you know in performances. It it happens. It's transmitted from grandmothers to mothers and mm. mothers to daughter, and they're kind of the lifeblood of what's going on. While very often the men are taking the bows and the credit for everything that's going on, and we're very interested in this ways that culture lives and grows and develops that aren't performances. So um, a friend of mine some years ago invented the term the festivalization of culture. And that right. means to think that investing in culture means turning everything into a festival, turning everything into a consumable object. And I know what that's like. I've gone through that um, in other cities, in other places. I didn't want that. I wanted to have a festival here, but I didn't want the festival to be the you know the the end and beginning and end of everything we're doing. I wanted to mm. develop actual cultural processes here. So the idea of having the OMA for that reason seemed like you know a good thing that we're 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 emphasizing that we're looking at less visible parts, you know, the less well-known parts of culture. And then also because empathy is a very big part of what we're all about here. And most people that I know, not all, but most people that I know even if they had difficult relationships with their parents, um, tended to have a good relationship with at least one of their grandmothers. Mm -hmm. In lots and lots of cultures, grandmothers are the people who also come to the rescue of grandchildren when they're not getting along well with their parents. You know, I, I knew kids when I was growing up who were living with their grandparents mm -hmm. because there was some problem with their parents. I know some people like that right now. So the idea that when you step into this building, you're kind of stepping into your grandmother's house that seemed like a nice thing too that it would it would just put people in the right mood and that has really been the case and um, a lot of decisions that we've made about how the inside should look the interior design are all about giving a kind of a a worn in homey feel rather than something that uh, looks unapproachable there's a guy who uh, he was nervous and um, then he walked into the building and immediately felt at ease because he he realized Anyone who likes the way that these walls look, I'm going to be comfortable with them, and I don't have to pretend to be something that I'm not. And that's, that's very important to me. It's, I, I think of the, of the balance between taking classes and volunteering as a very good life balance. Um, of course, not everyone has the time or in some cases the ability or the desire to do it that way, but what I like a lot about how we handle culture, in, I mean, in real life, culture is not something which happens in a separate antiseptic room cut off from the rest of society, but it happens with people you know there's a famous book about the shtetl in in eastern europe and it's called life is with people and even before i ever read that book the title impressed me and i had mm -hmm. a feeling i knew what that was about mm -hmm. so i like it that you know we go from from cleaning up the oma cafe and, and baking cakes and to playing in an orchestra together i think that's better than just signing up for a class and I'm a student and I'm paying for it and therefore I don't have yeah. to do anything else. And your photographer is the best cello player I've ever seen. And right. your web designer is the dance is teacher. Is a great dancer, exactly. Yeah. That's, right. that's amazing, that knocks me out. Right, well and Andreas is an amazing dancer and he's, and Johannes is a great violinist. Most of the people who are doing some management work here, including me, it starts mm -hmm. with me. First of all, we're artists. 
and and then out of our experience as artists of knowing what it's like to be an artist we create this environment talking you told the story about how getting to know somebody getting to know the other can change minds yes so. I think the story that I told you was that when I was probably let's see 75 when I was about 20 or 21 years old for a few years I played in a country and western band in Bloomington Indiana which is where I come from and um, in Indiana the university is the center of high culture And then the working class there who work on the assembly lines and things like that, their music is country and western music. And, um, and I had grown up as part of a university family, so a little bit protected and a little bit in a kind of an elite environment in that way. Not what in Germany, not by German terms elite, but let's say in the context of U.S. culture, you could think of it as a little bit of a protected academic mm -hmm. background. <clears throat> and unusual that it was Jewish too because there were very few Jewish families in Bloomington with kids my age. There were Jewish families but they were all a generation or two older. That's another story. So what happened was that the bass player in this band, um, we had been playing together for about a year and we were on our way uh, uh, to a job in Terre Haute which is about two hours away drive from Bloomington and all the way there he was telling me that he had just joined the Ku Klux Klan and very proud of this and telling me why he had joined the clan. It was all about the international Jew conspiracy that he was telling me about. And I listened to that the whole time and I thought, this is really interesting because here's this guy that I like. You know, we've been playing together for a year. He has no idea at all that I'm Jewish. And he's telling me proudly about, maybe he's trying to get me to join. You know, he's just sharing this part of his life with me. And um, So um, at the end of the job that night, uh, at the end of playing, I went over to him and I said, Joe, I want you to know, by the way, that I'm Jewish. And, and his reaction was, first he said, you, you, you're one of them? And I said, yeah, I'm one of, I'm one of them, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, well, but you're not, like, you're not like that. And I said, right. You know, and even if I were, that doesn't mean that everybody is whatever, like that <laughs> or like this or like something. And, um, and so we started having a little bit of a talk about it. And uh, he asked me if I had ever heard of these things before, you know, the things that he had been told. And I said, no. And, you know, you, we know each other for a year. And, you know, you know, I've got your back. When you forget the chords, <laughs> in the, in the, I, I, you know, yell them out to you like I'm a guy you can trust, you know. And a couple of weeks later, he came over to me and said that because of that talk that we had had, that he had quit the clan and that he thought it was, you know, not not true but I think that for me that was one of many experiences I had growing up in Bloomington where people who were coming from almost everybody came from a non-Jewish family mm -hmm. so I mean I was used to you know my family we didn't have the smell of ham in the in the air at lunchtime 
But my very best friend next door, I would go into his house and every single time I went in there, there was some smell of pork being baked or fried or something. And the parents would always, you know, offer it to me, even though they knew I was Jewish. And I would say politely no each time. But even the, the smell of that um, was something that was very, very different than the smell of my house. And uh, that was like a basic alienation from my whole environment that I always felt wherever I am here, Bloomington is a goyish environment. Um, but those were my best friends. And, and I felt from the beginning that um, it was really important for me to understand what it meant to be like them, uh, who they were, and connect with mm -hmm. them and not see them as uh, goyim, not see them as people outside of me or, or different from me in fundamental ways, but to understand you know, that they have their own way of putting their lives together and um, their own cultural connections and relationships and everything. And it's as human as anything that I experience. And so now at this festival, we've had Syrian dancers dancing with Israeli dancers. Right. And Weimar classical musicians playing with Israeli classical musicians. Right. And all sorts of things, Ye Yemeni dancing and all sorts of things together that you'd never normally see together. Yeah. And that well, actually, an Israeli, a young Israeli woman came up to me uh, from the caravan orchestra. No, it was from the Middle East Ensemble. And she had tears in her eyes and she said, if somebody told me one week ago that I would be sitting next to Syrian musicians playing with them and that they would want to play with me, I would have said, it's impossible. I can't believe what we're, what's happening here. come here have some experience of marginality or some experience that calls their identity into some question. It's not that anyone can come here and it will work just as well for them. Mm -hmm. I think one has to already be in a process where something has caused a question for you um, or curiosity about the other. You're, you're, there's, you're in some process of change or open to some process of change anyway already. People who are just firmly opposed to change don't come here. So it's not that it's a miracle cure. Mm. You know, all you have to do is come to Yiddish Summer of Amar and all of a sudden the world has peace and harmony. And there are plenty of people in the world who aren't open to change at all. So this is a platform for people who have even some basic minimal openness to change. Just let's start with that. Um, but then another thing that's important about this is that because because the way this whole thing works comes from my experience of being an other here in Germany. That I feel like I know how to create kind of some basic conditions so that people won't feel that way. So won't it's not just another in Bloomington, but it's an other in Germany too. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is that because of my life, which I've, I've often been in a bunch of different roles at the same time, 
So there was a period of time between 2001 and 2006 where I was playing in Carnegie Hall and playing in you know, the highest level uh, venues in the world. And at the same time, I was a doctoral student at the University of Cincinnati and the lowest form of life that there is, you know, in music, in the same field, right? So I would go from one day being treated like a god on stage, two days later to be treated like dirt by my own professors. And of course, when you bounce back and forth between a position of privilege and a position of unprivileged, then at a certain point you realize neither one of those is me. Mm. But these are both, all of these are projections of the world onto me. And my job is to not let any of those projections stick, but to kind of see the way that they're constructed and to see how can I connect with the people um, behind and through and on the side of these projections. So that actually goes for a lot of different things. So I think I grew up in the United States if I, if I do a kind of a privilege profile of myself, okay? Having white skin is a privilege in the place where I grew up. Being a male is a privilege where I grew up, right? So these are lots of experience of, of privilege that I never earned. Privilege isn't earned, but just inherited. Um, and took for granted. And then um, there are other things where I, where, I was not, where I didn't have a privilege. For example, being Jewish in Bloomington, Indiana was not necessarily a privileged identity mm -hmm. um, because it made me different in awkward ways from a lot of the people around me. Um, and then as I went through life, there were various ways in which I saw privileges that I had and other things which were not privileges. But I would say my fundamental situation in the United States is one of privilege. Although I'm not coming from even an upper middle class family, my, my family I would call it a lower middle class family, but financially we were lower middle class. In terms of cultural capital, we, we, were, we had a lot of cultural capital. My father spoke eight or ten languages and was a professor and my mother was a first grade teacher. And cultural capital sometimes takes the place of physical capital, of mm -hmm. money capital, right? Actually, a really pivotal, mo pivotal moment for me in my whole sense of all these things was um, in the year 1998. I'd been in Germany for about 10 years, and um, we had, I was in a pretty well-known klezmer band called Brave Old World, and um, we had an, an agent in Germany who was not Jewish, a German man. So in those days before emails and... and um, text messages and all those things you know somebody would have to the best they could send you a fax and say please send me a fax back in you know by the end of the day but also the band we lived I lived in Berlin this guy lived in New York another member of the band lived in Chicago another member of the band lived in California so communication in the band wasn't that easy and sometimes it took longer than the agent wanted so finally the agent you know ran out of patience and wrote me a uh, a fax so the words said um alan ich habe eure orientalische gemächlichkeit satt orientalische gemächlichkeit so this is like a kind of a, an oriental laziness you know not really caring very much kind of and i didn't know this word and i asked a bunch of people what does it mean and most of them said well it's at least lightly anti-semitic and it might be more than that so i wrote back to I had a big conversation. I was shocked that my own agent would use this word, and he claimed that it was not anti-Semitic. But okay, I understood there's this image, which I had never even heard of before, of, you know, kind of the, you can think of it as like the Oriental, 
somebody, you know, smoking opium and, mm. and kind of a hookah and just everything, you know, manana, you know. Um, and then a few hours later, I was on my way to the, to the subway station, the U-Bahn, and I was with a friend, and I was in a rush, so I was saying, come on, let's go, we need to go a little faster. And she, German girl, said to me, you know, always this Jewish rushing around. (laughs) So I thought, that's weird, because just two hours ago, I heard that Jews are always lazy and slowing down and too slow. And now all of a sudden, Jews are famous for (laughs) rushing around. And and so so then I got into the subway and the train pulled in and um, and I everyone rushed to get in and and in. I mean, instantly, the following three thoughts, probably in a tenth of a second, the following three thoughts shot through my, my mind. The first was, if I rush in like everybody else is doing that, then I'm being the rushing, pushy Jew. So I can't do that. If I wait until everybody has gone in, then I'm the slow, lazy Oriental Jew, so I can't do that. And if I find exactly the right moment, which is neither rushing in nor too slow, then I'm the clever Jew who figures out. <laughs> and, I, and I realized, aha, there's, it's an absolutely no win. This projection, once I'm in it, there's no way out. And all of a sudden I realized I had heard interviews with people like Duke Ellington and, and uh, Dizzy Gillespie up on exactly this subject from their perspective. How do they deal with the fact that they're playing a concert for a white audience that treats them like a god, but they still have to go in and out through the kitchen yeah. door because they're not good enough to go in through the front door. This was a constant experience of, of these amazing great black artists in the United States. And they always said over and over again, look, what, what the white people think of me has nothing to do with me. And I thought, I don't really understand. How is that possible? And even what are they saying? I didn't get it. And all of a sudden in that moment, it was like, all everything I had ever read, all the liner notes of, of recordings, all of that just went shooting through my mind all at once. It was like a blow to my head and I sat down and I started laughing and crying and I felt like I understand the fundamental position of not having privilege in a society and having to try to define yourself vis-a-vis all of these identities of these projections which do not leave you a way out. So that whole issue of self-determination became a very interesting issue for me at that point. And I'm thinking a lot about that. And in fact, a lot about what's going on here in the Oma is inspired by thoughts like that. Wow. So that's a story. Yeah. Thank you very much, Alan That was number two in the Fiona's Travels podcast series. Music included Alan Byrne on accordion at the Yiddish Summer Weimar, Alan accompanying Sveta Kundish with a nigun, the Middle Eastern Ensemble in a concert at the Yiddish Summer Weimar, and Alan's band, Brave Old World, recorded by Alan Dracopovitz a few years ago. Please subscribe if you want to hear more of my podcasts. Mm-hmm.